Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus podcast-only episode dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I welcome back today Dr. Paul Sieslak, who is the Medical Director for the Oregon Public Health Division's Communicable Disease and Immunization Program. And if that doesn't say COVID, I don't know what does. He continues to see infectious disease patients monthly. He has treated COVID-19 patients, and he's a very active CMA member and the state director for Oregon. Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me, Tom. Hey, it's summertime, and the living is not as easy as George Gershwin said it was. But uh, it's been eight weeks since we last interviewed you on Dr. Doctor. Lots happened on that time, and it just so happens in the news we're seeing upticks in cases and maybe even hospitalizations. Uh, But let's start with the good news. What is the best thing or things you've learned about COVID-19 in the last two months? What has turned out to be better than expected uh, since we last talked the end of April? Um, I would have to say it's the testing capacity. Uh, There's really quite a bit of it. You know, in Oregon, um, we've been paying close attention to this all along. And just in Oregon, we're capable now of of 34,000 tests a week. So, uh, you know, people are able to get tested if they have any symptoms uh, of COVID at all. Very good. What do you think is the the worst piece of news that's happened in the last two months? Uh, It is that I I really do believe that case counts are rising, hospitalizations are rising as states have opened up. So, you know, the lockdowns really seem to have worked for, you know, uh, they, they had their economic consequences, but as far as suppressing the disease, it really seems to have worked. And as we're opening up businesses again and, and, and recreational facilities, case counts really do seem to be rising. And, you know, uh, some, of the, some of that is thrown off by, by the testing, by the increase in testing. Sure. But when you, when you see hospitalizations going up, uh, then you know it's a real thing. Well, we're going to uh, hit that in detail. So, uh, But one thing I wanted to talk about was one of the good things is that we have mass back. We can receive the sacraments much more easily uh, than we could a few months ago. So from your perspective, how safely has this been happening? And have there been any outbreaks associated with going back to church? Well, in in my little neck of the woods of Portland, Oregon, um, uh, no, among Catholic churches, and there are some pretty stringent uh, limits on what can be done. So we have to sign up beforehand. Uh, They limit the mass attendance pretty severely. We sit in family clusters with a lot of spacing between each of the families. We wear masks during church. Uh, We're using alcohol, hand sanitizer on entry uh, to church. And uh, we receive, you know, we do receive the sacraments, though. So that's an opportunity that we have. Um, In other places, though, you know, there have been outbreaks among churches. And one of the largest outbreaks we've seen in Oregon to date has been in a uh, Pentecostal congregation in eastern Oregon. That that area of the state had not had a lot of cases uh, previously, but uh, we have well over 100 cases uh, from that congregation alone. And uh, I think it's because they were, you know, continuing to gather and and assemble. So were they singing during their services? Uh, I believe they were. Ah, and do you know if they were sitting six feet apart or not? 
I don't think they were. I don't think they were uh, observing the social distancing. And so I think it's it's a lesson for us. You know, it it uh, the virus is out there and it's going to spread if you give it the opportunity. You know, early on, we heard about the uh, super spreading event at the choir in Washington state. But I've seen that there's at least three other countries that had major super spreading events in Europe. So at least right now, it seems like singing in groups would be a high risk activity. Is that still your understanding? Yes, I think it's it's likely to be very high risk because, you know, as you know, this is a disease spread by respiratory droplets, which typically fall to the ground within a few feet of you. Uh, and we expel a limited number of them when, when we're talking and certainly when we're coughing and sneezing. But when you're trying to project your voice, when you're, when you're expelling air more for, forcefully through your vocal cords, I, I think that's likely to propel more droplets and propel them maybe a little bit further. So I, I, I do think it poses an increased risk. What do you think will be necessary for our bishops to be able to comfortably say we can allow singing at Mass again? What would you have to see as a public health physician? Boy, I would have to see either really low case counts or some level of immunity uh, of the people who are there. So we're, we're many months from that, you would think. You know, we are not, it's herd immunity or sufficient population immunity, if you will, is not even on the horizon. Uh, the latest estimate from CDC has about 20 million Americans being infected. That's well under 1% of our population. Uh, you know, there may be some areas where... 20 million uh, or 2 million? 20 million. So that would so, be under 10%. Uh, 3% 3, 3 would be 1, 3 million would be 1%. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I got the math wrong. Yeah, uh, right. So that's that's about uh, 6 or 7% of our population. So, uh, you know, n not even close to... Uh, to what well, we would need and, and to are you familiar with the serial survey they did? I think it was in Bergamo, Italy, where about 57% of people had it and it was still spreading. Right. So, you know, we've sort of estimated that we're going to need 70 to 80% of the population to be uh, resistant or immune to the virus before transmission will be stopped. And so they weren't there yet, you know, and, the, and they had more cases to, to happen before they were going to get there. Uh, a follow-up on that related to mass. What do, would you need to see as a public health official to recommend to bishops that they should not have parishioners wear masks to mass? You know, as, as the case counts rise with us opening up the society again, I think we are going to want to do everything we can. I, I don't think we're going to want to say, oh, gosh, if only we had done such and such, we, we, we would have avoided reclosing things. So, you know, I really want to see uh, case counts dropping again. And, and that's not the direction they're moving in before I would say, you know, OK, we can we can stop this masking business. That's that's great advice. I mean, something when I've talked, you know, on other radio shows about mass, we want to preserve this ability and not have anybody give us a reason to say don't do it. And I think we want to do everything we can so we don't have to close down businesses or medical practices again. So everything's short of that. Exactly right. I mean, everything that we can do so that, that we can keep our society running and still try to keep... Uh, case counts low enough where we're not going to overwhelm hospitals. 
What would you say to people who are afraid to return the mask? And I'm especially thinking of the under 60 crew who I've discovered in the last week, there's a number of them still watching mass at home and afraid to go to church. Well, again, I think it can be done safely if, if uh, the, the stringent safeguards are observed. And in, in my Archdiocese of Portland, I think we're doing a very good job of it. I mean, we're not getting any reports of, uh, you know, congregations being significantly affected in the Catholic world. Uh, so, you know, if attendance is limited, if spacing is observed, if people are masking, if uh, hand hygiene is, is being observed on entry, all those things, then, then I think it can be done safely. Data about infection fatality rate has been coming out and hopefully getting better. I saw a report that for those of us Americans under the age of 70, there's only a 2.3 in a thousand chance of dying if we come down with COVID. Do you think that's an accurate number? Uh, yes, I have no reason to question that number. Um, I think that uh, overall, the infection fatality rate is likely to be in the range of a half percent, uh, significantly higher than influenza. Uh, you know, but the vast majority of people are going to survive their COVID. But you know, I'm I'm an epidemiologist, right? So the way I think of things is okay if if uh, if we need. 60 plus percent of the population infected that's a couple of hundred million people in the united <laughs> states and and you know a half percent of a couple of hundred million is a lot a of lot people of dying people. and uh, you know we just don't want to see that no we absolutely don't i don't think anyone does so if if that data is accurate which you agree it is does it have any bearing on how or whether we open up schools and universities in the fall especially since the younger seems to be less likely to get the disease or less severe disease? Uh, maybe a little bit. Um, here, here's what I would, here's what I think we really need to be looking for. We, we need to know whether uh, younger people are somehow uh, less susceptible to the disease so that they don't get it in the first place or whether uh, they're just as susceptible as older people, but, they are less likely to get sick from it. Because if, if it's the former, um, if they're not susceptible, then you know, we, can, we can let them go to school. Uh, if they are susceptible and they just don't show a lot of symptoms, well then they're going to be multiplying the virus within the school settings. And sooner or later, uh, that virus is gonna go to other people who are susceptible, including you know, parents, grandparents, uh, other people in the community. And so you still have a problem there uh, if, if that's the case. Has your state decided whether or not they're going to allow schools or universities to open? Uh, it looks like we are, and um, we're going to have some restrictions in place. So we kind of took the six-foot uh, distancing recommendation and turned it into, you know, a radius around people and and we said okay you need a you need a six foot diameter circle around everybody and uh that's about 35 square feet so we said uh every classroom needs to have 35 square feet per person so that you can space the students out and and get at least very close to six feet of distance between each of them uh, masks are going to be recommended for children who are old enough to wear them. Uh, the teacher will not have to mask. We sort of presume that the teacher is going to uh, 
kind of be near the front of the class most of the time. I think we haven't figured out, you know, what's going to happen when the teacher needs to be uh, spending more time in close contact with the students. Because, you know, if, if you're a teacher, you know that you spend a lot of time walking between the desks yes. and looking over shoulders and, and things like that. So we, we still need to work on some things. Uh, some of the sporting activities are, are going to be open. Uh, looks like not all of them, but we're going to try to uh, conduct the ones that involve less, you know, direct contact between people. So which ones are likely not to occur in your state? Like football? Oh, I think football, wrestling, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, not, but uh, golf, tennis. Right. How about lacrosse or soccer? Uh, you know, we're talking yes on soccer. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, some, some people are raising their eyebrows about that. Uh, yes on baseball, I think. Very good. So testing, you mentioned that was one of the best things. So who should be tested at this point and which type of tests? You know, the swabs versus the... The, the blood tests. Right. Well, let me, let me start with the blood tests. So um, antibody testing is really not all that useful for diagnosis because uh, it, it doesn't turn reliably positive until something like 14 to 17 days after the onset of illness. And so, you know, when you first get sick, uh, that's kind of when you want to know if you've got COVID and your test antibody test is likely to be negative. Um, it's pretty reliably positive at about 17 days. Uh, the studies I've seen suggest that 100% of people develop antibodies by that stage of the game. Uh, so afterwards, that, it's, that's a nice way for um, public health surveillance to say, you know, how much of the population has been infected at some point in the past, uh, but not for, not for routine purposes. So now we're left with... Um, uh, two types of tests on respiratory specimens, whether it be a nasal uh, swab or the, the preferred one is still the nasopharyngeal swab, you know, where they stick this tiny thing <laughs> into your nose way into the, <laughs> until you hit pay dirt at the back of the throat there, it's generally a few inches. Um, so that's still the preferred swab. And there are two types of tests that can be done on that. One is uh, uh, the nucleic acid test. You're looking for the genetic material of the virus, the RNA of yeah. the virus. Um, and the other, uh, which is kind of new and much cheaper, is an antigen test. Oh. Uh, now, the, the antigen test is said to be uh, very reliable, but uh, based on small numbers of data. So uh, I'm waiting for more numbers to come out on the antigen okay. test. It may be a great way to go, but for now, I'm kind of withholding judgment until why, I see why would you numbers. call that a great way to go is it easier to get a reliable sample does it have a good sensitivity and specificity right the, the published data suggests that the specificity is near a hundred percent which we want to see so um and explain low, to our listeners what that term means it, it means well the the technical meaning is it uh, specificity tells you what percentage of the time when you don't have the disease, that's, does the test give you a true negative test result? So what that means in converse is that you don't get a lot of false positives. Uh, now, because the numbers are small, I'm not willing to, to give it the 100% yet. I want to see, okay, show me a, when, when you've tested 1,000 people maybe. Now, yes. now I'll believe it's 100%. Uh, the, the test is definitely less sensitive, though. Um, it was only about 80% sensitive when compared to the... Uh, nucleic acid tests, the tests for the viral RNA. Um, and so, you know, a little, little bit less sensitive in that department. But 
the test is very inexpensive. It can and can be done fairly rapidly. So it does have that advantage. How over many minutes or tests. hours to get a result? I, I, I think it's, you know, under an hour and, and it, you know, the testing materials cost like five bucks. I mean, there's wow. a machine they have to buy, but it's, it's yeah, it's inexpensive and uh, tremendous and, and pretty quick. So it may be a point of care tests in uh, clinicians' offices yes. at some point. So, you know, for now, we're, we're recommending that, it, uh, so who should get one of these uh, yes. test, respiratory specimen tests? Uh, we're, we're really saying that uh, it's going to do you very little good if you don't have symptoms. Uh, so, you know, just testing large swaths of people without symptoms is unlikely to be productive. You're unlikely, you're statistically unlikely to have it. And if you've been exposed, you might want to know, okay, do I have the virus? But the problem is that you know, there's an incubation period to the virus. You may have been exposed five days ago and you're destined to come down with the illness, but the, you, you haven't yet and it hasn't turned Soon. positive yet. So a negative test result doesn't mean that you're not going to have a positive one tomorrow. And, and that's why we're not, we're not big on uh, testing people who don't have any symptoms. So is but it still you, like a one to 14 day incubation range? Yeah, we're saying two to fourteen days still to 14. On, on the incubation period. The the usual is is probably in the four to seven day range. That's that's when you usually get it. But but there's a range, and uh, and and right now, you know, we're recommending it for anybody who has fever, cough, shortness of breath, and any one of those symptoms. Uh, we're we're doing some debating about. Are we going to test everybody who has a runny nose? Because we know that some people mm. with COVID-19 can get a runny nose. Uh, the problem is that there's a lot of other causes of runny noses. And, Allergies? Uh, uh, sure. And, and we're going to end up testing a lot of people who, who you know, don't, don't have uh, COVID-19. And especially in the fall when, when all the other respiratory viruses come back. Now, you know, everybody's got a runny nose and are we going to test everybody for COVID-19? The other question that I have is, you know, what percentage of people have a runny nose with their COVID-19, but don't have one of the other symptoms that I would test for? Right. That's, that's you know, what, how much does it add to, Do we to know your that? case finding? I, I don't know the answer to that I haven't seen. Because I'm thinking, before. okay, as a doctor, and I am operating on the faces of patients who are generally high risk for COVID. So what should I do if I have a runny nose, you know, just cold symptoms, but I don't have fever, cough, or shortness of breath? Yeah, I would say put a mask on yourself. Well, I am. I'm always wearing right. a mask. And, and don't, don't touch your face while you're uh, operating. I've noticed I am doing that less. I've gotten better. Thank you. Um, so you told me just before we started recording that you've seen the best evidence supporting masking because of a paper about pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic spread. Would you please you know, tell our listeners about that? Uh, right. The, the, the paper was a, uh, what we call a meta-analysis, which is um, basically a review of a lot of different studies, and they were trying to select the best studies to review on, on just how effective uh, masking is. And they ended up concluding that there was uh, a benefit uh, to masking. And, you know, of course, especially when the mask is on the person who has the disease, right. as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to protect uh, the person who doesn't have the disease. So, uh, it's it's really hard to find high quality studies to to look into this picture because usually uh, when 
people are masking in response to uh, an epidemic like COVID-19. They're doing a lot of other things as well. And it's hard to tease apart the independent effect of the masking from, you know, all the social distancing, for example. So, you know, they tried to look at studies where they actually did a randomized study and, and, uh, and they, they put all these studies in a pile and concluded that, uh, yes, indeed, it looked like there was some benefit to masking. Now, why do they keep saying, I have heard nobody address this question, why is the mask not helpful for preventing catching disease from someone else? Well, I think, you know, it's it's these respiratory droplets, and, and sure enough, sooner or later, uh, you get infected because they get into your eyes or nose or mouth. Um, but how do they get there? Uh, you know, is it that somebody coughs directly into your open mouth? Uh, I don't think that happens very often. And, and so uh, the, the mask is going to protect you from that and it's going to shield part of your face. But, you know, if you're touching the mask right afterwards and then, and then rubbing your eye, you're going to inoculate yourself with the virus that got on the mask. And, and when somebody's coughing, you know, they're going to, they're going to send little droplets, you know, across a, a wide range of areas, you know, that might include more than your face. And, and, the the problem is that you can you can get those droplets on your hands and then inoculate yourself. Uh, and a mask doesn't provide eye protection. Remember, um, we're starting to think more and more about uh, the virtues of having one of those plastic face shields hanging yes. down uh, in front of your face. Per, you know, perhaps uh, connected to to some sort of hat. You know, headgear, um, and and that may be a really good way to go. Yep, I'm always wearing glasses also when I'm operating. Thankfully, now. Uh, Let's see, pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic. Oh, routes of transmission. We just covered that. The CDC is saying that it's less likely that surfaces are involved. What does that mean? What's the, the data there? Uh, I don't know that they have a lot more data. I think that um, what they're going on is uh, the, the, the just low likelihood that when you get a package on your doorstep, that somebody would have coughed on it, that the virus would have survived, that the, you touch the part of the package that was coughed on and then you inoculate yourself. Uh, I, I think they're trying to, to reassure people uh, that that's not going to be a very likely way to get the disease. Okay. Um, and that, that, you know, the, the biggest problem is really face-to-face contact with other people. And I, I think I've said this before, but, you know, I, I told our pastor that, um, I think the biggest risk in our church is is the coffee and donuts social that we do after mass, which I very much enjoy doing. You know, where where the whole point of the operation is to sit across the table from, right. you know, a, a bunch of people, and then go to another table and sit across a bunch of other people and talk <laughs> at them, you know, for for ten minutes or so. Uh, so lots of you know lots of face to face contact with lots of different people. That's that's the kind of contact that is risky. Who should be quarantining under what circumstances now? Well, we're, you know, we're recommending everybody we can find who was exposed to the virus. And, and we would define exposure as uh, 15 minutes of face-to-face contact with, within uh, six feet of each other. So, um, you know, we're, we're saying that all of those people have uh, potentially been exposed to the virus. And for the next 14 days, uh, you know, we don't. We think they they are liable to becoming sick, and we want them to stay home. So, how is that altered if they were wearing masks during that encounter? You know, we would still advise quarantine. 
Um, so that, you know, we're saying that the masks don't provide so much protection that, uh, that you, you can escape the quarantine, if you will. Uh, but, but we do think it may make it a little bit less likely that during those 14 days, uh, you, you come down with symptoms. Let's talk numbers of cases. That's big in the news. And I was just on Worldometers um, a few days ago. And it looks like the case counts for the country are only down to about 85% of the highest numbers they had daily back in April. And that's using a seven-day moving average. But that deaths have gone down to under 30% of the peak. Um, different voices in the media are spinning this information in different ways. What do you think is the most reasonable way to interpret what these numbers mean. Okay, I, I think the case counts are rising. I think that the death tally is going to follow. Uh, it'll, you know, there's a lag uh, between reporting anyway, of reporting of the case counts, you know, which, which come in pretty rapidly. And um, first of all, somebody dying of the disease, it usually happens uh, two, three, four weeks into right. it. Um, so, so there's that, but then there's also the reporting of the deaths. I think there's a bigger lag there because oh. uh, the, the data systems aren't, um, aren't the same to, to capture who's dying of, of COVID-19. Uh, so I think they're going to be following. But I do think that um, to a degree, we're seeing younger people infected now. So, um, you know, we can speculate as to reasons for this. Part of it, you know, in Oregon anyway, we've been aiming a lot of testing around some of these clusters. So, uh, you know, the, the church that I mentioned, and we've had some uh, food processing plants that uh, we, we had outbreaks in, and, and we went, you know, we advised testing of everybody there, and they tended to be younger workers, so uh, less likely to be hospitalized. This is not the nursing home uh, right. outbreaks that we were seeing earlier. So, uh, and I think that's a good trend. You know, we've seen yes. a lot fewer uh, big outbreaks in nursing homes. So uh, they've gotten the message. And I think the other thing that's going on is, you know, older folks have gotten the message. So I'm 60 now. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to heed the advice, but but you see the younger folks, maybe, maybe they've gotten the message that they're less likely to die and they're out there uh, taking more chances than, um, than the older folks are. Uh, so that, that could explain uh, higher case rates while you're seeing lower death rates. I've heard it suggested that if uh, young people, especially children, get the disease, they're less likely to pass it on to older people than an adult with the disease. Is there any truth to that? I, I have seen some, you know, s small number uh, data suggesting that um, they shed lower quantities of virus. So that would be a nice thing, a nice thing to know. But we're still learning more about that. It's nothing to hang right. our hats on yet. Right. You know, we've been covering on here the fact that a lot of articles have been published with uh, out peer review or suspicious peer review. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth going on. What do you think is the latest that we know about therapies that actually help that we didn't know three months ago helped? Okay. I, you know, the only thing that, that I think I'm really willing to take to the bank is that this drug remdesivir, uh, for which there's now an emergency youth use authorization by FDA, uh, will shorten your illness by uh, a few days because there was a randomized clinical trial that, um, that found that as an endpoint. So I, I'm, I'm absolutely willing to take that to the bank. Now, I'm hoping that it also 
prevents mortality. I mean, that's, that's the big enchilada, right? Is, is will the drug keep you from dying? So, but that hasn't been definitively proved yet. So I'm still waiting for evidence on that. Uh, Hydroxychloroquine, there's been some uh, more studies out there. Uh, You know, none of them terribly high quality, most uh, basically uh, observational data, and they're not finding a beneficial effect to the hydroxychloroquine. Uh, You'd like to see a randomized trial, but let me say that the the evidence for benefit to begin with was never all that good. So, um, you know, we're spending a lot of time uh, finding out that, that or, or doing studies to, 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 to show that it wasn't that much that, that good, but the, the evidence for it in the first place wasn't all wasn't that, good. that good. Right. So I, I think that's unlikely to be, you know, and very then unlikely. The methazone, you know, one of my right. friends who runs an ICU said the dose is so low that he can't imagine that it really makes a difference. Yes. They were talking about, you know, uh, five milligrams, 10 milligrams, of, uh, you know, and, and, um, uh, homeopathic doses, if you will, yes. uh, you know, yes. uh, stress dose steroids. And it was an observational study, meaning they went backwards and looked at who got the drug and who didn't. And they found uh, that people who got the drug uh, did better than than people who didn't get the drug. However, y- you know, there are biases in terms of uh, medical care for who's who's getting right. the drug and, and uh, symptom profile illness. Uh, things like that. You know, if docs tended to give it to healthier people because they didn't think that, um, you know, it, it can suppress your immune system, right? So may- sure. maybe docs only gave it to you if they thought that your immune system was immune. well, uh, <laughs> then, then uh, you know, so it's an observational study. We really need a randomized trial to answer the question. And and I'll tell you, one of the things that's kind of been bothering me as a, as a doctor and as, you know, someone who considers himself scientifically minded is just just the the maddening number of non-reviewed articles that are hitting yes. the literature and the media yes. pick up on them and run with them and it's like hold your horses everybody i mean this needs a little more uh rigorous scrutiny before we can really uh act on it yeah we've covered that with uh barbara golder editor of the lineker quarterly and she has been very wise she's right with you there paul as am I. Now, we've got 50 states, multiple metropolitan areas, all applying uh, different methods to controlling this pandemic. So we have a lot of um, you know, studies going on in, in one sense. What are some of the key things we've learned from the different states and metropolitan areas and how they're handling things? Well, I mean, I can't, I can't pretend to be an expert on this because, uh, you know, I'm really focused a lot on, on what's going on in Oregon and, and maybe a little bit on uh, neighboring states. But um, I, I would say a couple of things. Number, number one is that um, locking down really did seem to work. So that the states that locked down early uh, knocked, knocked their case counts down. Now, it's a totally separate question whether that's economically sustainable and and whether the the damage to the economy from those kinds of actions uh, was worth it and um you know this is not just something for doctors and scientists for to, to, to decide this is something that society needs to wrestle with but as far as you know was there a, a health what was there a benefit in terms of covid19 rates, I think the answer is a resounding yes. So, so locking down um, 
did reduce the disease rates. Um, I think population density is important. Uh, you know, we've seen the, the highest disease rates in, in uh, you know, urban areas with the dense populations. Uh, so uh, th that's something that I think we've learned. Uh, some of these workplace outbreaks have shown us that you know, when you have large numbers of workers working uh, at close quarters for long periods of time. Meat packing plants. Exactly. And, and, and oftentimes, uh, you know, workers uh, socializing afterwards as, you know, of course they do. Um, you know, that's, that can cause a lot of uh, disease to spread. And I think we've also learned that um, we, we need to keep the virus out of long-term care facilities. What do you think, just as a public health physician, about comments that some political leaders have made who supported the recent protests but still forbade gatherings of 25 or 100 people, depending on the locality? Was that inconsistent? Um, you know, uh, they're politicians, and, um, and they, need to, they need to take the political temperature and, and you know, factor those into their decisions. Um, uh, yes, I think there was some inconsistency there. Uh, you know, looking at what was going on uh, in our area, there, there were a lot of protests. Uh, I'm, I kind of doubt that um, the way they were being conducted was really facilitating a lot of transmission. And the reason I say that is that, you know, what I saw was most people masking and trying to maintain distance. Like I, I saw a park full of people, but they were all seated, seated in like, you know, what looked like family groups of three and four with, you know, distance between them all. Uh, and so I, I, I'm I'm not ready to jump on it and say, oh yes, there's mm -hmm. tons of disease transmission right. there. Uh, moreover, you know, we we ask about our, our cases about uh, have you had um, have you been to any large gatherings during your incubation period, and we have not been finding uh, that a lot of people were sort of clustered in the same place. And oh yeah, this this particular location of protest was a nidus for infection. So uh, I, I'm not I don't think we're seeing a lot of it. Um, but you know, yeah, there, people are exceeding the assembly limits. That's good to know. Um, and also, you know, before you said, if you were 15 minutes face to face with someone, whether or not you had a mask, you should quarantine. Does that calculation change if you were outside on a windy, sunny day versus indoors? Well, you know, for, 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 uh, our public health purposes, we, we would still say, you know, you meet the definition. We, we'd ask you to quarantine, but, I do think the risk is lower on the, in that kind of setting because, um, you know, where there's free flow of air uh, and especially if, as you say, on a windy day, if the wind isn't blowing from the patient into your face anyway, <laughs> right, uh, right. I, I think it's likely to, um, to scatter the droplets. And, and so, yeah, I, I think outdoors is generally safer than indoors. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely encouraging people to get out and exercise. So the case counts are going up. One reason is more testing, but I don't think you think it's the, the whole reason. I'm curious about another possibility. We notice they're especially going up down south where it's hotter. Do you think that being in air conditioning where the humidity is lower is having an effect? You know, I think that's entirely possible. Um, 
you know, we think that one of the reasons uh, respiratory viruses tend to spread in the wintertime more is that people are in their homes where, um, where things are drier. And, you know, you look at a state like Oregon, which is very wet in the wintertime, and you're going, and you're, you're going to say, what, you're, you're saying it's drier in the winter in Oregon, like what's the matter with you, you know, but, <laughs> but when, when people are in their house and the heat and the furnace is on, right. uh, that's drying out the air in the house. So uh, we do know that, um, that COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, as well as influenza and a variety of other respiratory viruses survive longer uh, where it's cooler and, uh, and where it's drier. So if you are in an air conditioned unit, uh, you know, I would think that the virus would, would survive on, on surfaces longer than, um, longer than it usually does. So during the winter, when we start turning the heat on again, if we have the ability to humidify our air, what humidity would you be most comfortable keeping it above? Boy, I, I, I just don't have any data to give you a number okay. on that. I, I remember say. with influenza, it said like 40 to 60% was a sweet spot. Okay, in, well, in, yeah, I, 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 can't, uh, I, I can't add anything useful to that. <laughs> so what non-pharmaceutical interventions, so that means the social distancing, masks, hand hygiene, travel restrictions, business closures, which of those interventions do you think are most important right now to keep the pandemic at bay and yet live lives as close to normal as possible. Yeah, I, I, I think it's distance, you know, maintain distance between people. So, um, you know, uh, Dr. Redfield at CDC gave a nice uh, statement about um, individuals considering their own risks, you know, consider whether you're a high risk person, you know, which if you have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or heart disease or diabetes, you, you certainly are, or if you're uh, over 65. So consider your own risk. But then, um, but then there are these three parameters. You know, there's how many people you have contact with. There's how long do you have contact with them and how close are you during your contact. So number, duration, and proximity. And, uh, you know, those are those are the three variables that you can influence. So um, I would say, you know, if if you need some contact with other human beings to stay sane uh, during this time, then then you know, do so. But but limit one or more of those factors. Have you personally decided to increase your contact with people outside your family within the six foot bubble? Uh, yes, I mean, I I've had. Um, you know, we, we have a little porch out front uh, where we can sit and maintain some distance. And I've had, a, you know, like two friends over at, at one time. And, you know, we sit apart from each other and we have conversation in the evenings. You know, we're having these nice long days right now. And, and uh, you know, I've been getting home from work pretty late, but still there's some daylight and warmth out there. And, and, and we'll sit out and have a beer or something on the uh, front porch. But we're outdoors. And, uh, and, and we're trying to maintain some distance, and it's, it's not a big crowd of people. So just because some governors have artificial dates set up, like here in Indiana, July 4th is set up to basically open up, except with recommendations of social distancing. But it's important for us to realize a lot of this is, is pretty artificial. It's not based on cases or science. Right. I mean, you know... You got to cut some of these guys a break because we're we're all trying to oh, you yes. know, grope through a uh, 
you know, a situation for which we, we don't have the, all the data that we want. And, and there are major trade-offs to any decision that we make, you know, either economic or, or, or medical or whatever. Um, so yeah, the dates, the dates are artificial and they vary from state to state. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the messiness of, uh, of democracy and, 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 a, and a disease that we know so little about. How important do you think a vaccine or vaccines will be to get us back to normal life? Uh, the, the longer this goes on, the more important I think it is, because uh, I'm not seeing an end to it without a vaccine, to be honest with you. Um, and it's kind of personally depressing to me to say that, uh, because, you know, we, we've been... We, we've been sort of in emergency mode here for five months now. People are tired, you know, and, and now we're being asked to investigate more and more cases uh, because the case counts are rising here. Um, so I really think we need a way to protect people that doesn't involve, say, and uh, stay away from all your family and friends. There's been concern that vaccine production might be rushed. In fact, I've heard that they're filling millions of syringes with vaccine in hope that when the studies come through, they show effectiveness and safety so that they can get it out to people as soon as possible. Are you concerned, or how concerned are you, that uh, an untested or undertested vaccine might be uh, foisted upon the population? Uh, I don't think it's going to happen because I think that... Um FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which has to approve any vaccine, uh, is aware of the of the issue there. I mean, the last thing that we want is to is to uh, have kind of a false start on a vaccine that that collapses confidence in it, and then when we get a good vaccine, nobody wants to take it. So um, I I heard what I thought was a very uh, reassuring strategy uh, on a call with CDC where they were talking about this uh, Operation Warp Speed. Yes. And, um, you know, and, and you hear that term and, you know, it can make you nervous. Okay. You know, you're going to cut some yes. corners to achieve that work speed or uh, that warp speed. So, um, but what their strategy is, is they're, they're going to look at vaccines that they think have promise and they're going to try to accelerate, um, uh, bring them to clinical trials quickly. I also heard that, you know, they're going to need to do clinical trials involving something like 30,000 people before yes. they can be uh, assured. So they're going to try to get, you know, have to get a lot of people volunteering to, to take this thing before it goes out to the general public. And, and there are many vaccine candidates out there and, and Operation Warp Speed will, the funding there will be used to make sure that they're all looking at common endpoints so that we can you know, whether it be intensive care unit, uh, admission, hospitalization, being on a ventilator, mortality at 30 days, you know, there's all kinds of different endpoints that you can choose. So they're going to look at common endpoints so that you can compare the vaccines one to another. Uh, and uh, there was one other thing I wanted to say about that. Um, Oh, and, and endpoints that we care about because, you know, in the past they could, they could just pick some arbitrary endpoint and, and this one vaccine will, will have been shown to reduce this endpoint, but it may not be the, the stuff others. that we care about. And, and obviously one of the things we're going to care about is, is adverse events and, and especially yes. serious adverse events. So uh, they're going to use the funding to try to uh, get some consistency between the vaccine candidates on those parameters. How will they find volunteers? 
But what if I want to volunteer, a listener wants to volunteer for one of the vaccine studies? You know, I don't know for sure, but usually what they have to do is is go to several, you know, like like maybe a few dozen uh, major university centers across the country that have established research programs and know how to recruit people. And, and they say, look, each one of you guys, you know, recruit so many subjects into this study so that they get a, a variety of uh, geographical representation they're going to want. Uh, age and uh, racial and ethnic representation uh, across the country. And, and they, they have to recruit that way. It's not going to be like one big study in, uh, in Fort Wayne. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what, you know, you know, you're not a prophet, but uh, I'm going to ask a question about the future. What is your best estimate of what happens in the fall when students go back to school and universities. What do you think will happen with case numbers and more importantly, hospitalizations? Uh, I think they're going to go up. That's my best guess. And, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to have to see whether that's happening and react accordingly. Uh, you know, and if they start going up, we may have to say, okay, college, we're, we're going back to, um, to more online learning. And uh, do you think that uh, some of the schools are going to require masks for students? Uh, yes. We, I know you are in Oregon. Have you heard about universities? Um, I haven't, but I suspect that uh, anybody who's in uh, like a lecture hall with more than some certain number of people are going are gonna to have to mask. Paul, what final comments do you want to leave with our listeners about where we are today? And uh, we're recording on uh, Friday, July or June 26th. Well, I just want to say that this this is a real concern. And if we hope to get to get back to work and get our economy up and running again, then uh, we're, we're going to have to continue to observe these measures of uh, physical distancing and masking and hand hygiene. And uh and, and keep an eye on, you know, how your local hospitals are doing in terms of uh, bed capacity and, and, and those kinds of things, because uh, no one wants to see, you know, patients out in the parking lot uh, who need to be treated out there for lack of bed space. Paul Cieslak, thank you for being with us again on Dr. Doctor. This was a phenomenally informative interview. I, I think people are going to greatly enjoy this. And thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. 
Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.